Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss how Acid House triggered a musical and cultural revolution in Great Britain over the course of two second summers of love. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Or should I say Techno Roll? I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and Techno Roll means Ryan Harkness has joined me to continue our discussion of Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture by Simon Reynolds. Ryan, we're getting to England, Acid House Explosion, 88, 89, big doings. It's familiar territory, but I love it because this is really, it's a, really a fun time. And uh, the last time we talked about it, it was very DJ driven and maybe even a little bit dry. But this one here, I feel uh, captures a lot of the mood of, of what's going on. And it goes into detail on on some of the elements. The criminal element I found was really fascinating how they didn't just say, oh, you know, it was fun until the criminal element came in. This time they were like, no, no. Let's talk about that criminal element and let's give you some real life boots on the ground uh, perspectives on what that looked like. So it was a it was a it was a real eye opener in a lot of ways. And I really enjoyed it. Reading it again for, you know, the fifth, fifth or sixth time I've gone through this this particular patch of history. But each time it's it's new stuff. It's cool. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, machetes and clubs trying to trigger race riots. So uh, some ugly and scary stuff. But let's get to the fun stuff first. Then we'll get to the backlash and the hangover. So yeah, we've we've talked about this with Brewster and Broughton, how 80s London club land was, as Reynolds puts it, crippled by cool. Rare groove had succeeded jazz funk. And it was, as, as Reynolds says, it was the fag end of 80s-style culture, elitist obscurities and deference to a bygone, outdated notion of blackness. And at the same time, house seemed to be a fad that had come and gone. People had tried uh, playing house in London discos, both straight and gay, and and no-go. It had a tiny toehold in gay clubs, but they mostly preferred the high-energy sounds that were big at the time. Um, and 
you know, you had Mark Moore, Colin Favor, and Eddie Richards at Jungle and Pyramid, who were lonely crusaders. And then you had the, and, and they were in the gay uh, clubs. And then the Watson brothers, Noel and Maurice, or Morris, were at Delirium, tried house, didn't go. And Paul Oakenfold uh, had gone to Ibiza and had his conversion experience as early as like 85 and came back and tried a Balearic style club. And again, it, it did not did not work at all until the timing is right. And the timing had a lot to do with the availability of ecstasy. Yeah, it's interesting. The UK club scene was locked into this stagnated situation where the punters coming out to drink would literally throw beer bottles at DJs who tried to switch things up musically. So it's not a very fertile ground for experimentation. Anybody who watches enough TikTok videos these days has seen some bad bar behavior. And I imagine 80s UK bad bar behavior was particularly terrible because uh, I, I remember visiting Northern Ireland when I was a child. My That's where my dad's from and seeing ads on the television trying to convince people not to bottle or glass each other. And then glassing is when you, when you take a pint glass and you don't just hit someone over the head with it you hold it uh mouth forward and you hit someone in the face with the mouth of the glass so it explodes and the glass goes in the face and it's messed up so and yeah. there's just these public service that please don't do this so this is kind of <laughs> this is yeah, kind of the vibe something fortunately i only ever saw in train spotting and did not have to live through also got the pleasure of reading among the thugs and not living it. But yeah, the soccer hooligans were off the chain. Uh, and so were um, stadium riots and stampedes. So yeah, pretty ugly era in England, but suddenly the cure comes along. And I, I do want to say though, it wasn't totally a musical dead zone because some of the kids throwing bottles were hip hop kids who were a little homophobic about house. So it wasn't that they were all stodgy oldsters, you know, well, stuck in the, the rare groove. Jazz the, yeah, funk that's, yeah, we, we can't totally dismiss. I mean, rare groove was its own scene and it wasn't terrible until it was, you know, the same with Northern Soul had it had its moment. And if you if you caught that at the Wigan Casino, it was amazing. It's just when when these things kind of tire out and don't die and, and you've just got angry people who are, you know, at the at the bar looking for a drink who just don't want to hear any any gay stuff. All of a sudden it gets real weird. Yes, indeed. But one good thing that came out of hip hop making an impact in England was the succession of records that that Reynolds calls DJ records. That so these are breakbeat and sample collages that generally don't feature rapping. So you had Mars or M A R R S uh, pump up the volume, which uh, took uh, some Rakim samples from Eric B and Rakim and and went number one all over the place. I can remember seeing that on night tracks, which is what we had in Borger, Texas. Instead of MTV, we get it for like 90 minutes on Friday night. But that pump up the volume thing was massive even in the in the US. You also had Bomb the Bass with Beat Disc that made it to number two. And and they cleverly named S Express or Sexpress Express. I'm not sex sure how they, express. Let's not yeah. let's not joke around. It's Sexpress. <laughs> exactly. And and their theme from Sexpress, and this was by DJ Mark Moore that we just mentioned, is one of the guys who had been trying to break house. Um, this was seen as the first British house record, but it's not quite that. But let's go ahead and hear it. This is the theme from Sexpress, S Express or Sexpress, whatever. This is the theme.
that was DJ Mark Moore's Success with theme from Success. Went to number one on the British charts and was seen as the first British house record. So there is some movement in the charts and it's it's trickling down into the culture. But meanwhile, Oakenfold has continued to evangelize for Ibiza and, and um you know, he's had this conversion experience with DJ Alfredo, Alfredo Fiorio and and Ibiza, who's throwing in all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, you know, he's doing I guess a basis of Euro pop and, and synth pop but also throwing in early house and then really left field stuff like U2 and the Waterboys or the Wooden Tops or Thrashing Doves. So it's just got this mellow, expansive view that's so opposite of yeah. the really constipated London. The Balearic style really is kind of an all comers or all styles uh, thing. And, and the reason that you needed to call it Balearic is because it was so different from what was going on in the UK. Over in Ibiza, people were more open to the idea that you could mix in, uh, you know, a bit of acid house in with your with your progressive rock uh, in with your, you know, more chilled out uh, R&B sounds. And and that Balearic attitude is what they kind of tried to import from Ibiza. And, and you know, the Ibiza link is something that doesn't get much play in this book. It's just a few paragraphs, basically. But it's so important because that that trip, that that famous trip that Oakenfold and Danny Rampling and Nikki Holloway took to Ibiza, uh, where DJ Alfredo kind of opened their minds to a new, more eclectic style of DJing. You know, those three guys, basically, and their attempt to import that style and copy the Ibiza vibe uh, was was really what kicked off the whole acid house thing. And even the drug element of the acid house thing had a big Ibiza connection, because in addition to the ecstasy being ported in from the U.S., a lot of the E in the U.K. was being imported and exported by soccer hooligans operating on the island of Ibiza. So at least until the Dutch operations started getting going in the early 90s. But so Ibiza, you know, they brought the music from Ibiza. And then the drug connections came from Ibiza as well. So those two elements kind of meshed together to make the acid house explosion happen. And DJ Johnny Walker was on that trip as well. And so, yeah, and they and they also have perfected or codified a little subculture. They've got baggy trousers and T-shirts, paisley bandanas, ponchos, Converse trainers. They've figured out how to dress to dance on E all night to these Balearic sounds. And when... Oakenfold gets back to London. Um, he has an after hours at the Project Club in Streatham. And I'm, excuse my apologies for the mispronunciation. I know I'm butchering these British place names, but what you going to do? But he flew in DJ Alfredo and presented the hipwazie of London with a fully formed subculture. They had the Balearic sounds, they had the costume. And it immediately clicked, whereas none of these efforts to bring house or Balearic sounds to London had succeeded before. And it starts at a very small scale, but it quickly grows. And soon that after hours at Project Club is too successful and the cops raid and close it. So, um, you know, everybody kind of has to go to the drawing board, but there's big encouragement to go to the drawing board. It's it's very obvious that something is happening here. And Danny Ramplain and his wife, Jenny, opened the Shoom in Southwark, which is the chrysalis for rave culture. Um, and uh, the future, uh, they get a, a night, a Thursday night at the Sanctuary, which is a round back from the big gay club heaven, which we talked about on the High Energy episode in the Brewster and Broughton era. So the heaven is just this mega, mega London club. They've got a smaller club around back 
they give Thursday nights to these cats for um, for Balearic sounds, uh, uh, you know, and and it starts blowing up. And then the shoom is really fascinating to me because it's one of these scenes that's like it's got its own internal contradictions baked in from the beginning because it's a small club. Jenny Rampling becomes this legendary doorkeeper and apparently really knew how to pick a crowd, how to build a crowd and, and have the scenes she wanted to create. But the yeah, problem I liked, was, I liked how there was more emphasis on Jenny Rampling's door policy than there was on Danny's Danny Rampling's DJing even, because it's written as, as it only can be by someone who's been stuck on the wrong side of the queue trying to get in. And that was Simon <laughs> Reynolds. You could tell that he was basically like, yeah, I, I tried and I did not succeed. Yeah, absolutely. But since their ethos was this, populism like hey let's be cool it's not about what you're wearing it's not about having the rarest tracks it's about playing stuff that feels right it's about dressing comfortably so you can dance all night but that was immediately in conflict with the exclusivity of having a very small club and trying to maintain this vibe and this experience so you know the contradictions are built in from the beginning as they so often are in these things yeah, the argument went that it was like a 200 capacity venue and it was like barely even a club. It was more of a like a fitness center at the beginning. And you had to be exclusive when you had that small of a, a capacity because the second you start letting spectators in instead of participants, you're going to ruin the whole thing. And it certainly doesn't jive with the Wraith ethos as we know it now, but I don't think that even really existed that much back then. Like the manual hadn't been written, the rules. Uh, so to be hypocritical of something that wasn't even fully formed then. And of course, you got to keep in mind the state of UK clubland that we mentioned before, you know, how one pack of liquored up mates could wreck an entire night, if not the entire brand, if uh, something bad goes down. And, and, and all of a sudden you start to kind of understand how Jenny Rampling on the door, making sure that the people who get in are the people who are actually going to be dancing and having a good time and not uh, just completely killing the vibe and, 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 you know, grabbing the girls and doing all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and because of the massive fog machines they had going in there, it wasn't about being seen. And Reynolds says it was about losing your cool, losing your self-consciousness, losing yourself. And, you know, and, and, and then he points out that rave in its pure populist form is the antithesis of the club. And we're going to see that dynamic all through the book. Like even these people that are currently our rave heroes are soon going to be reactionaries going back to the club side of things. So it's it's very fractal fractal different people are having different experiences at different times and reacting to the same stimulation in very different ways but it it just keeps building by spring 88 oakenfold had opened a spectrum on mondays at the heaven club he got the big club by this uh, it took three weeks to break even but by the third week uh after that it was it was off to the races and it just got bigger and bigger yeah, that was a, a club that was – I know Richard Branson was involved with it somehow, and it actually got him in a, a lot of heat because there was accusations that everybody going through the door was getting an E. And all of a sudden he had to to watch out because he was getting embroiled in this whole drug scandal. Yeah, and and – we haven't quite got the tabloids haven't quite got hold of it yet, but they they will soon. And Reynolds had another great quote about Spectrum. He said at Spectrum, and I guess he did get into Spectrum. He said everyone looked like they were from Mars, drenched in sweat, wearing baggy clothes, looking at the DJ like it was some kind of weird religious experience. I actually don't think that was Reynolds. He was quoting somebody else there, but. It gets kind of distilled. And, and for the people who'd been going to the clubs, dressed into the nines, and listening to the rare groove, this was 
totally left field. And and they talk about how, um, you know, Oakenfold and, and the Ramplings are, are evangelizing for this stuff and trying to tell some of the hipsters, you know, this is the future. And people are like, no, no, it's not. These are suburban normies. This is not going to amount to anything, but it just keeps building and building. June 88, Nikki Holloway, another one of the Ibiza pilgrims, opens up the trip. Um, this is in London's West End, so it's, quote, the scene's emergence into the full glare of public consciousness. Um, and the music is full on acid house rather than the laid-back Balearic vibe. So it's it's um, very different. And the crowd, because of the E, doesn't want to shut it down when the pubs close and so they kept partying after closing they would just um congregate in the in the car parks and play their car stereos and so and at first the police are like bemused like what's going on and mobs of people surrounding the police van yelling i see i see <laughs> like <laughs> it's very much like accounts of mid-60s proto hippies doing acid and the authorities don't know what to make of it yet. Uh, you know, the authorities kind of have to get the word from on high. And when you've got these hierarchical systems, the drones are trying to react on the fly and they don't know what to make of it. Yeah, and it's funny how and before the cops kind of get involved, everything is just, you know, taking care of itself. Obviously, it kind of spirals out of control later. But at this point, you know, there's no reason for the cops to go in and bust heads. If there's a couple of people out in the uh, the nightclub district yelling in the middle of the night, well, there's no housing nearby. So who cares? Yeah. And and more people jump in. Um, the RIP crew, it's not rest in peace. It's revolution in progress. They, they start the rip at Clink's. Clink Street, where they found an unlicensed uh, bar, have all-night parties. They've got DJ's Kid Bachelor, Evil Eddie Richards, and Mr. C, who had all been trying to break house at the Fantasy Club, which was one of the first straight house clubs in London, but it hadn't clicked. But this time it did. And again, these guys aren't playing Balearic either. They're playing, quote, the intense underground side of house. And this is where it gets weird because people going to that club see, quote, a lot of soccer thugs and villains, but no trouble. And the bouncers and the, and the different people that are paid to keep an eye on the troublemakers, you know, multiple incidents of people freaking out because you've got punters from two different soccer clubs in the same club. And previously that would have meant instant riot. And suddenly these guys are arm in arm, taking E, dancing, and just having a big time. And they're also mixing LSD with the E. So it's not just an E scene. There is an acid aspect uh, to this. And Yeah, the ecstasy will give you about four hours, and the LSD will give you about 12. So <laughs> you kind of combine the two, and you got yourself a pretty good all-nighter. Exactly. And, and he says that E became widely available in London for 20 pounds a tab, which is just like – I mean, but, you know, if it if it makes your night, makes your life, you know, I guess it was worth it. But, uh, yeah, I was around in 1988 and, and tried to stretch my drug dollar a little further. <laughs> but but they also figured out that alcohol dulled the buzz. And so they started drinking soft drinks instead of alcohol at, at places like Shum. And the early rumors was that, you know, E would turn into the sex maniac. But what it really did was make people more cuddly and huggy. So it was more of a sensual vibe than a sexual vibe. And that really threw people off. And he goes into a whole essay about the what he calls the love thugs and just these, these hardened hooligans um, who've been – and, and he makes this analogy that 
in Thatcher's England, you know, Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister of England, the architect, one of the architects of neoliberalism, this is the woman who said there's no such thing as society, just individuals. Soccer stands, football stands were the only place where you could have a communal experience before raves came along. So people are looking to find this collective fervor, this liberation of losing yourself in a crowd, as Reynolds calls it. And um, with E and this music, suddenly the hooligans are abandoning hand-to-hand combat for E, um, although he points out that it's only temporary because E has a built-in expiration date. Uh, no matter, you know, you just can't take it harder. <laughs> like yeah. every, every every drug has that downside. But let's um go ahead and hear another song. This is one you picked out from the beloved The Sun is Rising. Tell us why you picked this one. Uh, that was kind of a, uh, I wanted to give people an idea of what the Balearic sound uh, kind of gets into. Uh, when you, when you're going through the playlists of what Danny Rampling was playing, it, it's, it's, you're kind of hearing it and you're like, okay, I thought this was going to be a lot more acid house, but it turns out there's, there's a whole bunch of, you know, as what Mr. C would say, some real soft stuff. He, he was very hard on, uh, playing the real acid house and the acid techno and everything else like that. But, you know, the Balearic sound, a lot of it was very loose fitting shirts and flowy moves and uh, some down tempo beats. I think we talk about it later, Paul Oakenfold reminiscing about the days where the dance music was 98 beats per minute and that was the right speed. So this (laughs) is a perfect example of, of just how Balearic the Shum sound was. This is the beloved, the sun is rising. Beloved, the sun is rising, the Balearic sound in action. And and I think when you hear that and you take yourself back in time, you can kind of pick up on what Reynolds calls the mantra for a state of mind. And the branding on this was the second summer of love, with the first summer of love being 1967 when Sgt. Peppers came out and LSD first uh, became known in the popular consciousness and and was popular for the first time. But the thing about the 80s is LSD was way more popular than it ever had been before, and I believe since it's been ever again. So um, as much as the 80s has this reputation as the buttoned-up new romantic era of Maggie Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, it was also the era the Grateful Dead became the biggest concert attraction in, in the United States. Bands like the Butthole Surfers are blowing people's minds. And so this psychedelia and and also you know commercial rock a lot of people were pining for some kind of return to psychedelia tears for fears did a psychedelic album prince did a psychedelic album so this second summer of love thing was something that was really well timed but it also had people uh getting into new age kind of stuff and and you know i think i think that I'm so glad you picked that Balearic song because it gets the vibe. Before these things become giant, you know, 10,000 people in a field dancing to hardcore house, it's smaller clubs. People are discovering this new drug and having this massive experience with it that's not replicable. If you've ever done E, and I'm not recommending that you do, but if you've ever done it and you try to go back and have that experience again, you will not. Um, just all these things have have their own, you know, built-in expiration date. And 
Yeah, acid kind of opened your mind, but E stuffed love into that open spot where it was just kind of waiting. So there was there was a real explosion uh, forward in 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 kind of a, a really positive direction. And as he said, a lot of new age thought coming out on that, just a lot of alternative counterculture thought. And while it wasn't uh, anti politics or it wasn't. Uh, uh, count, uh, you know, counterculture in, in, in the sense that it, it goes against a lot of the teachings, but it wasn't counterculture in a sense that it was like uh, fighting the government for anything. There, there wasn't really a political stance to a lot of it uh, on, a, on a grand scale. It was very individual in, in that regard. Like uh, lots of people kind of talk about the fake rave revolution because there was never any kind of concerted action against the government, but it was kind of one of those uh, uh, tune in, drop out type situations where people were just like, you know, we, we don't want anything to do with fighting the government or the politics or whatever else like that. We're just going to go over here and do our own thing. Yeah. And, and, and Reynolds does quote some of those critics who say, you know, this is, this was no revolution. This was just hedonism and a new package, but nevertheless, it it's getting bigger and bigger. And by 1988 in London, you could rave seven nights a week. On Fridays, there was the Mud Club. Then you'd go to uh, what they called A Transmission, which is another RIP event on Clink Street. Then Saturdays, you'd go to Shoom or the Trip. You had a choice. You could go to the West End or not. Then uh, RIP at Clink Street for the uh, all-nighter. Then Sundays, uh, where Nikki Harwood had another club uh, called Confusion, which was kind of a come-down night as you brace yourself for the work week. But if you wanted to hit Spectrum on Monday night, then Daisy Chain in Brixton on Tuesday, which was a gay club that uh, was welcoming to to sisters-in-law, as they call it, or in-laws. Uh, and then Wednesday, Pyramid at Heaven. So the big gay club is is turning over the whole club on Wednesdays. Rage at Heaven on Thursday. So seven nights a week you could do this stuff. And, and, and as he talks about, and that we talked about before, that e-hangover is brutal. And if you try to take ecstasy every night, my God, I mean, that will just eat all the dopamine and serotonin in your body and leave you so drained. Um, so, but this is kinda, no longer a situation where it's in, you know, these are individual events. And I felt, I find a lot of books concentrate on the, you know, the individual club scenes or whatever else like that. But now we've had a point where in London where it's a whole underground scene where there's this blob of people who are, who are available to go out to all these events. And you have a situation where house and breaks on a Tuesday night is going to draw a couple hundred people. And to me, that's, that's, that's when a city's really hit a point where there's a, there's a proper club culture or a subculture of the specific kind of music is that there's always somewhere it's always bumping somewhere. And anytime I go to a new city, I'm always kind of interested to find out, you know, what, which are, which are the subcultures that have that bumping scene where, you know, you could, you could, you could ride the wave seven days a week if you wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. And and those times come and they go and, and people who get to experience something like that appreciate it if, if you come across it because it's, it's not going to last. It's not going to last in your city and it's you know going to move around. But the tabloids start picking up on it. And at first, the coverage is positive. Um, they're repeating the second summer of Love My Vibe and messaging that the that the punters are, are sharing amongst themselves, but pretty quickly the headlines are more like acid house horror and sex crazed acid mob, mob attacks police. And there was a 21 year old woman, Janet Mays, who who died uh, in October '88 from uh, X. 
dehydration. And so the backlash uh, comes in. And But as it so often does, the tabloid coverage did not kill the scene at all. It was very much like Bill Grundy having the Sex Pistols on in 1977, it just explodes and takes it national. And that led to a whole influx of younger kids and suburbanites. You know, if they thought it was a scene for suburban normies before, the suburbanites are just going to flood in. And this is where the original Ibiza Pilgrims uh, recoil in horror. And, you know, you've got the Boys Own fanzine crew. That's one of the few zines that was documenting the scene at the time. They are just you know, dumping scorn all over what what they call acid Ted's, um, you know, better dead than acid Ted was one of their slogans. And these guys are part of the scene. They've been throwing private parties under railway arches near the London Bridge. Um, and Reynolds talks about this tension and he compares it to the mods versus the rockers in the 60s. And he, he says, quote, there was an upper working class superiority complex vis-a-vis the undiscriminating, unskilled proles. And there was also a generational class. So you had a group of people who are in their late 20s who've seen some life, experienced some things, seen some scenes come and seen them go, and who can handle their drugs, suddenly dealing with this you know, they're outnumbered 10 to 1 by teenagers who have no world experience, who have no concept of what they're doing and definitely don't know how to handle these drugs that are pretty new and nobody really knows how to handle. And so the original um, folks uh, backlash. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors, and then we'll hear where these Balearic people tried to pull the scene as they recoiled in horror from the acid Ted's. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. And as one does, when a scene gets ruined or new people come in and, and try to take over your scene, one way to keep control of your scene is to change it. And so the original Balearic Posse, they get really into Chicago Deep House and New Jersey Garage. And um, they have a party in fall of 88, the brainstorm party, and bring back dress up club culture. They, they, you know, less than a year into the existence of this scene, it's stratified. And now you've got the original hipsters who brought it to London, who are now, um, you know, being overrun by all these acid freaks. And so there, as as Reynolds says, the Balearic's, quote, subculture capital had suddenly gone public. The ensemble of sounds, gestures, rites, and apparel that they had invented had become common currency, tarnished, and tawdry. Yeah, and, I think uh, Paul Oakenfold said it was unsophisticated people doing unsophisticated drugs. And, of course, when you as an individual do drugs, it's a beautiful spiritual thing. But when other people you don't know do it, it's a tragedy and it's a disgrace and these people aren't doing it right. Um, of course, yep. this is the other side of the coin. I think we all know exactly what's implied when Boyzone rails against the acid Teds. You just have to meet a couple of these people going way too hard to understand how irresponsible drug use is annoying as hell. Uh, in Canada, we used to call them etards, which obviously isn't politically correct these days, but it also summed up the behavior and our disdain for the behavior pretty well. Oh. Yeah, and, and there's an anecdote in here about a young woman who had been kind of one of the 
faces on the scene who had a psychotic break and you know one weekend just started compulsively repeating the slogan promoting the, the next day's show and pretty soon she's in a, in a psycho ward so you know when you see it it doesn't take seeing many of those things if you see somebody who's young and bright and beautiful and with it suddenly turn into a, a zombie or a lunatic that's terrifying and and really can can ruin the scene and ruin the party for individuals and so that's happening all over the place and so the the two factors the combination of all these young kids who don't know what they're doing who don't have any life experience who definitely don't have any drug experience dealing with novel psychoactive drugs that nobody really has a handle on how they work and the fact that a lot of the original pioneers have burned themselves out from overdoing X and have burned up all their serotonin. So they're just getting this empty buzz without the love feeling. And, and that's where, um, you know, the scene changes, but it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It reminds me very much of the original disco scene in New York in the seventies where, People like David Mancuso at The Loft and Nikki Siano at The Gallery came across this sound and vibe and scene and dress code that just resonated with people everywhere. And it very quickly spiraled out of their control. And the same thing's happening here where they've they've found a formula that has mass appeal and and it just blows up, blows right up. And and you know, this is when the D-Mobs, we call it Acid, goes to number three. And he calls the song the Acid House counterpart of Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock, where it's the watered-down, pale imitation version of stuff that had been bubbling under. Bill Haley, you know, he would cover Big Joe Turner, and and it was good, but it wasn't, you know, what's coming down the pike right behind him and Elvis and Little Richard and Chuck Berry. And, you know, this is just kind of a pale imitation of what's going on in house. And it's uh, it's just yucky. <laughs> I'm not even going to play play. We call it acid. I'll play yeah, you, you refused. I sent it over and you were like, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just even 30 seconds of it. I mean, I had the experience of hearing it in clubs um, in the States where people just had no idea what to make of it. I can remember distinctly it cleared a dance floor full of people who had been happily dancing to New Order and Human League minutes before that. Um, and, and uh, you know, that was one that actually stuck with me because it was just so ridiculous. I went home. That was our catchphrase for a weekend. But one, one thing he talks about is that, you know, for a British pop cultural explosion, Acid House was unique insofar as it was based almost entirely around non-Indigenous music. Like what had happened before – all the way back to the trad jazz scene in the 50s, then the beat boom with the Beatles in the 60s, followed up right away by the R&B boom. But this this time, there's no Rolling Stones yet. There's no Beatles yet. There's not even an Acker Bilk yet. This this is British kids putting on records. There are British DJs, and that's kind of one of the things about DJ culture where somebody like Paul Oakenfold or Nikki Holland or Danny Rampling, and they're bringing in people like DJ Alfredo, and they're even starting to fly in, uh, you know, some of the Belleville Three or Frankie Knuckles. They're bringing in these DJs, so the DJs kind of become the face of it, but the records are just coming. Uh, there's, you know, a three, four-year backlog of Chicago House and Detroit techno tracks to catch up with. Plus, there's a deluge of new stuff coming out of Chicago, New York, and Detroit every week. So, um, and this is where he draws the analogy to Northern Soul. And I think this is why 
Brewster and Broughton spent so much time on Northern Soul, which, you know, again, it was similar in that it was not an indigenous scene. It's just Brits playing old American records, you know, white Brits playing records by black Americans. But Northern Soul never became a national craze in the way that Acid House did. Acid House just overturns everything. And so it's so it's kind of a combination of Northern Soul and punk. It's got that year zero aspect that punk had where, you know, suddenly everything that came before is passe and we started over from from year zero. And the same thing is happening here. All the dance tracks of the past decade are suddenly passe and have to be, you know, reviewed in light of the acid house explosion. And this is around the time that um, the techno compilation comes out and Detroit techno becomes named as a separate thing from Chicago house. And it's just as simple as Neil Rushton, who was a Northern soul freak, got in touch with the Belleville three and licensed their tracks for UK release. Then he ends up selling it to Virgin records or a subsidiary of Virgin 10 records. And at this point, and they were originally going to call it the house sound of Detroit, but they, they branded it techno instead. And that kind of had the effect, just like when they named house before there were even records being made when it was just whatever records Frankie Knuckles was playing at the warehouse was house music. Suddenly, techno becomes a thing because it's been named, and that is incredibly powerful. The powerful, the power of naming. But before I let you respond, I want to go ahead and play our alternative to we call it acid, which uh, this is also pretty silly. This is Acid Man by Jolly Roger. Acid Man. Americans will recognize the voice of Tommy Chong being sampled in there by Jolly Roger, which was an alias for DJ Evil Eddie Richards, who had been one of the first guys to try to break house um, in London and failed before he became part of the Rip crew at the Click. So, yeah, it's it's um, beginning to see some British albums or not albums, but singles that are making an impact. But nonetheless, they're competing with things like Strings of Life by Derek May or uh, One Atkins Model 500. Kevin Saunderson from the Belleville Three, he's got Inner City, which is having literal pop hits, Big Fun, Good Life. These are top three, top five. I think one of them went to number one. So, you know, they're, they're having this massive success. Plus, these kids from Detroit are being brought over, and they've got some really fascinating quotes. Like Derek May says, if you're a kid in Detroit, you might never even have to see a white person unless they're on TV. The closest association I had with people outside my race was when I started traveling to Europe. The first time I went to the UK, I played for 5,000 white kids. It really expanded my horizons. And so they like the money. They like the exposure because, you know, the scene is kind of drying up in, in America. But at the same time, they kind of recoil from what um, – Simon Reynolds says, for Derek May, the debauched and deranged atmosphere of the British scene was a world away from his vision of the ideal techno audience of urbane aesthetes. You know, Derek May's a kid 
sitting at home listening to his Kraftwerk records and reading GQ and thinking, imagining, you know, people like that, uh, you know, like the, very bougie and very yeah, controlled. The Detroit scene was not so much a drug scene. Uh, it wasn't really even that much of a club scene, so there's not a lot of drugs to do at the clubs, but it must have looked like absolute an absolute madhouse to these guys coming over and playing for just 5,000 out-of-their-mind Brits. Uh, even in Chicago, which was way druggier, there was still like a deep grounding and foundation provided by the the, the gay scene. Like it's kind of, they, they had an, an instruction manual about the love and acceptance angle of the whole thing. Well, in the UK, they were just fumbling at the bra of ecstasy and pinching the nipples of unity because they weren't they were inexperienced <laughs> and no one ever taught them how to do how to do it you know right there was there was none of that groundwork that was that was laid out by people that said you know this is a this is a sacred space this is important for us to all get along there's something going on here yeah and eddie folks who was the sort of the fourth member of the Belleville Three, kind of the Pete Best of the Belleville Three, um, he said, techno was a musical thing in Detroit. There wasn't no culture, no whistles, no ease, no throwing parties at old warehouse warehouses. A warehouse party in Detroit, we'd sweep it clean, we'd paint it, put mirrors on the wall, get a nice sound system. It was not dirty and raunchy. And Reynolds kind of flips out on his head and said, Maybe this is actually a tribute to the British youth who took this imported music and built a cultural around it, an entire apparatus of clothes and rituals, dance moves and drug lore. And eventually the cultural framework they built actually changed the music itself, mutated and mutilated the sacred Detroit blueprint, adding new inputs and intensifying certain elements that enhance the drug sensations. So, yeah, I think this is gives us a clue as to why the original Black Americans from Detroit, Chicago, and New York, New Jersey are not going to stay at the forefront of this movement because they're not part of the movement. They don't see the movement. They don't relate to it. They can't understand it. So you're going to get new people as soon as they get the, the hands on the technology and get up to speed um, operating the technology and making records. They're going to kind of steal the torch away from our pioneers here in the States. Yeah, there's always it's always the the classic story of the, of the pioneers that become the the horrified onlookers as what they created gets perverted into something else. Like folks went so far as to coin the genre black techno soul to try and save save techno from what it, the whitewashing and commodification that he saw happening to it in the UK. Uh, you know, it didn't work. Uh, but you know, it was a, it was a good try. Yeah. It was pretty much as doomed as Paul Oakenfold's 98 beats per minute movement, which, um, just didn't, didn't get anywhere. But meanwhile, the original promoters are having trouble with this mass success and there's so much opportunity and there's so many empty warehouses and there's so many punters on the east end of london you know remember it had been big in the west end the east end is the much rougher side of town and um you know the rip crew starts traveling around and having brainstorm events all over the place there's riverboat parties with the criminal syndicate are definitely involved in those and there had been a tradition of of warehouse parties going back to the reggae scene in the 70s and the funk and soul and hip hop parties and uh, had had been big in warehouses in the 80s and there was even a bunch of crusty punks called the mutoid waste companies that were an anarchy punk collective that had thrown warehouse parties but you start to get a new uh crew of entrepreneurs uh this guy and i know i'm going to butcher his name so apologies but it's joe whiskorek any guesses on how to pronounce the 
No, I'm gonna let you go uh-huh. down in flames alone on that one. <laughs> Joe right. Wiscor, why, Joe Wiscoris. Now oh, we should be better at this. I know, I know, I really should. Uh, <laughs> Just the name work. part, considering our backgrounds and all the international names we have to deal with here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, as simple as probably googling his name and listening to uh, you know uh, somebody say it, but. Anyway, apologies, Joe, but he ran a club called the Labyrinth, um, which became the world's longest running rave club and started out in late 88 in the East End parties and um, pulled off 120 warehouse parties in 47 venues uh, for, I think, 18 months, something like that, before he, he threw in the towel and went legal. Um, at the Four Aces Club and stayed there until 1997. But he's one guy who managed to see the gangsters coming and kind of sidestep them. And he's also the club where the gangsters came in with literal machetes and started attacking black dancers, trying to make it seem like a race riot. It's like a British Charles Manson sort of thing. Unfortunately, Joe was not at the club that night and you know escaped with his life and went legit. But his rivals, the Genesis promoters, um, they had been the hands down the number one East End party organization, and and they threw in the towel. They they did not take the next step to go massively big and legit. There was also a pirate radio station called Center Force that ran a club called Echoes. Reynolds fingers them as being particularly uh, gangster linked, um, so allegedly, as we always remind ourselves to say, but. This leads into this next period where it's massive raves and aircraft hangars, grain silos, open fields, and this crew of people. And if you watch the documentaries about these guys, it's just these classic British upper-class twit types. Um, You could see a young Boris Johnson hanging with some of these people, like Tony Colston Hayter, who ran the Sunrise promotion. He figured out even if you're having a massive party in a field for 5,000 people, if you make them all sign a piece of paper and pay you 15 pounds to be a member, then it's a private party. So he got this sweet loophole. He also figured out to use the voice bank system, which kids today don't remember this, but back in the day, you dial numbers and, and voicemail was a big new technology. And so they would put out flyers and all it had on it was a phone number and you'd call that phone number and it'd tell you, go here and get the next clue or dial this number and get the next clue. And so chasing these rays became kind of a fun activity in itself. Yeah, there was a whole cat and mouse element to the whole thing where they would gather all the ravers in one point kind of nearby the party and then they would drive them all over together so that there was enough of them there that the cops wouldn't try to shut it down for fear of there being like a riot or of causing too much, uh, too many problems because, you know, if you have all these people in one spot, at the very least they're in one spot and the cops didn't want, you know, a, a, a thousand kids on the, on the road drunk high everything else like that there was a there was a real lesser of two evils things going on at the beginning where the promoters would trick the cops into letting the party go on because if you to shut it down would cause so much mayhem that it would they just had to kind of let it let it happen and uh, the, the the phone banking was a, was a big part of that so that they could coordinate and get people around the uh, the orbital motorway system around England was all, around uh, London was a huge part that's the technology that let these events go from 200 people to 2,000 people to 10,000 people because all of a sudden you have a way of, of basically navigating everybody from, from the entire area to like one farmer's field just outside of town. 
Yeah, and and sort of a prequel to what we would call a flash mob today. And let's hear our last song. This is um, one uh, from Flowmasters, which is an alias for DJ Frankie Bones. This is called Energy Dawn, and this is a track that he composed after having the experience of playing his first massive rave. I think he played to 10,000 people uh, as the dawn came up, started his set at 6.30. This is Flowmasters, Energy Dawn. Flowmasters, a.k.a. Frankie Bones, with Energy Dawn, which is an ode to the experience of, of DJing a set at 6.30 in the morning for a field of thousands of thousands of people. And there's a qualitative difference in these experiences, too. He talks to a woman who had been at the Shoom Club when it was just 200 people, and she said, you know, dancing with 10,000 people on E was completely mind-blowing compared to doing it at Shoom with 200, that it was it – was, a different experience. And yeah, it was 25,000 people that Frankie Bones played with um, at one of these energy mega raves. And, you know, there's just a period where it's big and getting bigger and bigger. And that sort of leads into this inflation of more and more shady promoters and more and more big claims. People putting posters up claiming we're going to have the biggest light show. We're going to have the biggest sound system. We're going to have the most DJs. And also they're bringing in 12 DJs to play uh, in one night, you know, instead of one DJ playing for two, three, four, five hours or even going all night like Frankie Knuckles had um, or Ron Hardy had in Chicago. Now you've got 12 DJs all with an hour each and they're all just going straight to the greatest hits. So you can't do that DJ Alfredo thing where you're throwing all kinds of curveballs at people and, and telling a story if you're just rushing in there and, and trying to, you know, compete with these uh, other performers. Then you got and people like, yeah, it's, it's hilarious how this is, uh, uh, you know, th this is 1988 or 1989. And this is the, the same complaint that they're having, the same conversation that they're having about how it's ridiculous that we're having these one hour DJ sets and how are you supposed to create a journey? How are you supposed to do this? It's the exact same conversation we're happening or we're having right now as well. So it's funny that it goes all the way back. Uh, to the beginning of, of of rave culture, where there's the big uh, the big argument versus the one hour set versus the three hour set versus the seven hour set, and there's you know there's there's pros and cons to all of it, but the scene is being chugging along, and and DJs that you know are playing one hour, you seem to be seem to be getting people to dance just as well as the DJs that are doing three hours or five or seven hours. So you know we 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 survive one way or another. Yeah, yeah, the scene the scene definitely survived. And there's also this weird phenomenon of people like Adam Ski or Guru Josh who are keyboard whiz kids, that's what Reynolds calls them, who are live rave performers. And so, uh, you know, they're actually playing live music to rave crowds, which is, you know, a total break with the DJ tradition and, a, and, a, and a kind of a preview of what we're going to have next time when we talk about the Manchester scene when – you get club scene going in Manchester in a big way, but you also get rock bands adapting to that scene and starting to play dance-influenced music. And for a minute there, 
because of sort of the institutional advantages of rock. Like at this point, 35 years later, it's hard to grasp um, if you're not a boomer, a Gen Xer, how big rock was in the 80s. I mean, it was just an institutional force that wasn't dad music yet. It was it was young dudes music and it was the key demo, that sweet, sweet, you know, 18 to 34 demo was all about rock. And that's what the corporations and that's what the advertisers wanted to reach. That's what the writers understood. And so, you know, there's going to be an attempt uh, by rock to, to, to steal the throne and, and steal the momentum of the scene. But we'll tell that story next week. And there's a few other things. He, he talks about some more songs um, that go on the pop charts. Uh, Black, Black Box's Ride on Time is number one for six weeks, which Reynolds says it felt like a victory for the rave nation, the climax of the second, second summer of love. And, you know, it it's getting massive but at the same time the cops are cracking down more and more the parliament starts um, writing these laws the promoters are shady and do themselves in by over promising and eventually you know there's there's some big shows that just don't happen like biology through what um, Reynolds called a hubris foredoomed mega rave in Guildford in October of 89 that was supposed to be the first million pound party but it didn't even happen at all. And, and, you know, when it's, you get all, go ahead. Yeah. It, it's funny when you talk about a scene's demise, uh, be it for a country or a city or whatever, many ravers will point to like X or Y party as the, as the real turning point, the one that did it, the one that failed so spectacularly, spectacularly that it gave a lot of ravers PTSD and drove them back into the clubs where they wouldn't be stranded two hours outside of town because their car got towed or they got a $500 ticket for illegal gathering or, or, or anything like that. There's, there's classic stories from every city about the party that crashed so hard it crashed the entire scene it sounds like this biology one was 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 london's example yeah yeah absolutely and so as the summer ended they didn't know um and this is the second straight second summer of love that's that's um a thing i don't think i made clear when reynolds was was making that joke that you know you had the second summer of love in 88 then you had the second second summer of love in 89 and that vibe of love and inclusivity is not going to last. But this music and this cultural shift that's happened where Brits have learned to dance all night, to take a different set of drugs, to stop fighting with each other, and to listen, well, to dance, to all this crazy, super innovative music, that's going to continue throughout this book and throughout our discussion of this book and throughout the 90s in England. So final thoughts on the first and second second summer of love well just as far as you know there's a lot of hand rigging about the sh shady businessmen and criminal elements surrounding the the really big warehouse and uh, and festival events but we can't ignore that it's considered one of the golden ages of raving like these guys may not have delivered any everything that they promised on the flyers but uh, you know a lot of people had a lot of good times and I feel like it's kind of like Mexico. The safest tourist spots in Mexico are safest because they're controlled by the criminals who enforce the law in a kind of lawless realm. So, you know, I hate to say it, but some of the best parties were thrown by the promoters with the dodgy connections because they had that revenue stream above the $20 cover 
And enough of that trickled down into event production and DJs and sound stuff that it was hard for me back in the day when I was throwing raves, like a straight outfit that just made ticket and coat check and juice bar money to compete with these ones where they were throwing, you know, maybe, maybe 5% of the drug proceeds into the, uh, into the budget. But, you know, that's still enough to blow the doors off of most people's minds and, and just give them memories that'll last forever. So, you know, as much as, and again, this this book does a really good job of of talking about how these the these criminal elements will come in and and literally hack people up with knives and 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 pull over your wife or your mother and threaten them with their lives and stuff. The the parties that were happening were still uh, were still pretty bopping. Uh, it seems it seems seems kind of trite to say uh, in, in retrospect, but at the time, you know, as I said, if if these things weren't massive, monumental, life changing events, we wouldn't be here twenty years later talking about them. Yeah, absolutely. And and this connection between music promotion and the criminal element, I mean, jazz in New Orleans and Storyville at 1900, uh, Duke Ellington in the 1930s playing for gangsters like Oni Madden. I mean, this there's been this symbiotic relationship. Hip hop built on gangster money. There's a great series on FX right now talking to a bunch of people who were on that border between gangsters and and hip hop promoters and went back and forth. So nothing super freaky in in a big party scene attracting the criminal element and then and then the criminal element doing a lot to elevate and expand the party scene. So yep, another exciting chapter of Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture by Simon Reynolds and Ryan Harkness. It has been a hoot as always. And we'll be back next week to talk about Madchester. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to talk about the Madchester scene of the late 1980s and how a rock rave merger seemed poised to take over the world. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.